Hey, thanks so much for joining in with us here at the uh, conclusion of our Holy Week. Uh, here we are gathering together in this way, wherever you are, whomever you're with, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here uh, on Good Friday. Um, and again, I hope that you're able to gather together, maybe in your community groups, uh, maybe just with your family, maybe with some friends or some neighbors to consider these last moments of Jesus. Yesterday, we looked at the last few moments that Jesus had with his closest friends, his disciples, in our Monday Thursday conversation. And we're taking some time tonight uh, to really look at the last actual moments of Jesus' life. Again, we spoke on this yesterday, but the, the simple principle, the law of the last. If you know you can have a, a few remaining moments with someone, maybe it is before a trip or you're going away for a season or whatever, you're going to think about what you say. You're not going to leave it open to just a random statement. And we know that Jesus knew these were his last words that he was speaking on earth. Those were his last moments he was spending with his disciples. And so we can only imagine that we, being creations uh, who think the last moments matter, would expect that our creator of the universe took some prayerful, thoughtful consideration to what was going to be shared. And so based on the principle of the law of the last, here we are. We're going to look at the last several statements of Jesus. I would challenge you or encourage you, if you're meeting with people, having conversations, feel free to pause the video after each statement, maybe to have some prayerful consideration, some conversation around the scriptures and, and what we are unpacking this evening. In addition to that, I think that we can all admit that we, we read the scripture too quickly. <laughs> we do a lot of things too quickly especially surrounding familiar passages of scripture like the crucifixion of Jesus, where we kind of all know what is shared. We know what's going on, but we tend to read those things that we know on a shallower level. We, we gloss over a lot and, and therefore we believe we miss much. But again, it's not just reading the scriptures we do too quickly. No, we, we chew too quickly. We watch TV too quickly. We drive too quickly. We do too many things too quickly. So what we're going to do uh, this evening is we're going to read the last seven statements of Jesus. Again, things that we would be familiar with, but we want to encourage uh, embracing this moment. Look at the last seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross, slowly, thoughtfully, prayerfully. And again, we encourage you conversationally as well so that we can digest what God is wanting to deliver. Again, this is something that we try to confront in our small groups, what we try to confront in our community group season as well. God is not an individual experience. God is a group activity. We believe that God and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the ultimate group activity, and we are invited to that as well. The context of the cross is the fullness. It's really the fullness of heart and intention of God. And I want to look at uh, Paul's words to such in Colossians chapter 1 before we look at the last seven statements of Jesus. And Paul writes, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things 
and whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray. Father, again, we come to you in this holy season and uh, we just come to you humbly. We, we thank you for the greater opportunity to focus on you. Uh, but we ask that the scriptures, as we look through things that we might very well find familiar, let us find uh, a, the shape of resurrection for our own lives. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us and guide us. Make us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read before we jump into the seven statements of Jesus in particular. I want to read a passage from the book Cross Vision, how the crucifixion of Jesus makes sense of Old Testament violence. Gregory Boyd uh, is someone who I really appreciate as a pastor and an author. He made this statement before that I've always held on to. He says, Jesus is what God looks like when no clouds get in the way. We have a lot of traditions, we have a lot of tolds, what people expect us to know. And then there are the scriptures. And it's wonderful when those things align, but there are also times when we need our traditions to be confronted by scriptures, where we, want, we need the tolls, what people tell us by the scriptures. And he writes in this book some wonderful thoughts that I want to share. And again, frame out something that we may be very familiar with in terms of the cross of Christ and what's taking place on the cross. Boyd writes, Christians have almost always assumed that God must do it the way humans have always done it, and not coincidentally the way we believed other gods do it. God must resort to violence. And as I will now show, if we keep our eyes firmly fixed on the cross, we will see that, as a matter of fact, God never needs to resort to violence, to punish sin, or to overcome evil. Christians believe that Jesus stood in our place on the cross and bore the judgment that we deserved. But Many Christians assume that this means that God the Father needed to vent his wrath toward Jesus by killing him so that he would need to vent his wrath against us by sending us to hell. This is one version of what's called the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. While I firmly believe Jesus died as our substitute, I think this way of understanding how and why Jesus died as our substitute has some insurmountable problems. On top of this, the view of the atonement does not make clear how our guilt could be transferred to Jesus, nor how God the Father's decision to pour his wrath on Jesus rather than us is just. Moreover, in this view, Jesus doesn't reveal the Father's love, Romans 5.8. He saves us from the Father's wrath. And if Jesus had to die in order to pay the debt that we incurred by sinning against the Father, then the Father never really forgives anyone. Forgiveness means releasing a debt, not collecting it from someone else. Perhaps the most significant problem with this view, however, is practical in nature. In the penal substitutionary view, the father solved the problem of our estrangement from him by raging against and slaying his son. This understanding is premised on the age-old assumption that violence fixes problems, what has been called the myth of redemptive violence. Notwithstanding Jesus's and Paul's strong and clear teachings to the contrary. The truth is that according to the New Testament, God the Father didn't need to engage in any violence to have Jesus suffer in our place. Jesus certainly suffered a lot of violence, but every bit of it was carried out by wicked humans who were influenced by Satan and other rebel powers. 
The only thing God the Father did when Jesus suffered the judgment that we deserved was withdraw his protection to allow other agents who were, quote unquote, bent on destruction, Isaiah 51, 13, to do what they wanted to do to Jesus. For example, Paul says that God did not, quote unquote, spare his own son, but, quote unquote, gave him up for us all. Romans 8.32, emphasis added. And God, quote unquote, delivered him over to death for our sins. Romans 4.25, emphasis added. Of course, in the process of withdrawing from Jesus to allow him to suffer, the Father was also abandoning him to bear the full weight of the world's sin and the full terror of the God-forsaken curse that comes with it. And this is why, as Jesus bore our sin and experienced the God-forsaken curse that we deserved, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Since Jesus reveals exactly what God is like down to his very essence, we must consider his intense grief over this impending judgment to be the indicative of the grief God experiences whenever people come under his wrath. God longs to mercifully protect people from the destructive consequences of their choices, like a hen protects her chicks. But when people are not willing to be protected, and when God sees that his mercy is simply enabling their sin, he has no choice but to quote-unquote hand them over to suffer these consequences, just as he did with Jesus, and his heart wails in the process. Terence Friedheim sums up what God experiences when he decides people must experience his wrath when he says, quote, Grief is what the Godward side of judgment and wrath always looks like, unquote. In this light, I believe we must envision the Father wailing rather than raging and hopeful rather than vengeful when he abandoned his son on the cross to suffer the judgment we deserved. And since the cross reveals what God has always been like, we must envision the same grieving yet hopeful posture whenever God see, sees he has no choice but to abandon people to suffer the destructive consequences of their sin. I know that was a bit long, but I think it was beneficial for us. It is indeed the love that is the greatest of these that we just worked through our RSVP series. It is indeed love that covers a multitude of sin. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. And I think as we are looking into the cross experience, the eventual resurrection, but the, the cross experience of Christ and hearing his last statements, that these are not acts from a vengeful God, but a hopeful father. And the first statement we find in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, I'm going to read the whole passage and then focus on the statement. Two others who were criminals were led away to, put, to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, statement number one, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. But here's the first statement of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but I tend to picture God as this like great multitasker, a real DIY guy, all at the same time trying to do all kinds of different things. But I'm coming to a different landing place with God, one that accept, accepts that God 
is so laser focused, so all consumed with love towards, mercy for, grace giving, that nothing else matters. Nothing. Even in the midst of excruciating suffering, even after being emotionally and physically abused, God is still focused at a singular task at hand, forgiveness. Or could could it be that God isn't still focused on forgiveness, but rather forgiveness is the only thing on which God is ever focused? The second statement, and again, I would encourage you, maybe you want to pause now and have a conversation or, or meditate, think about that scripture in particular, those, that statement of Jesus. The second one is Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged at, at him, uh, hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to the man, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Throw dogma, tradition, what we've been told, all of it, throw all of it away. What we think we need to do, to know, to understand in order to be saved, in order to enter into what God has for us. Let's all collectively just throw that out of the window just for 15 seconds. Let's throw away everything that's been established. I'm becoming more and more convinced we spend unnecessary time trying to learn, trying to listen, trying to really earn when what we need to know is that we're loved, is that we are accepted. Just that. Let me reiterate. The thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's no break for a sinner's prayer. There's no opportunity for water baptism. There's no teaching or seminar on spiritual disciplines. Jesus' response is, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Statement number three is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. Starting in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I don't know about you, but to me, this is just shocking. Again, all the things that have transpired and everything that's going on in the middle of everything, Christ always seems able to address the one thing. There's a notion here that uh, the Savior doesn't negate. Now that he's a Savior, he doesn't lose sight of the fact that he's a son. God has bandwidth for all of our circumstances all of our relationships, all of our needs. As Jesus is hanging on a cross, submitting to become the savior of the world, he still remembers 
he was a son and that his mother needs to be cared for. The fourth statement is found in Matthew chapter 27. Verses 45 and 46. We'll read the whole portion. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabatani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is in this moment, even as Gregory Boyd relates to us, that God is being withdrawn. His presence is being withdrawn. It's in this moment, Christ fully knows what we are all too familiar with. Separation from the Father. He is earning our wages of sin. He is being exposed to the natural forces of death, being cut off and separation, what is referred to, again, in your own reading in Psalm 22. His call and reaching out would be our normal. It's what we are being given in Romans chapter 8, that Abba, Father reality. The fifth statement can be found in John chapter 19. We're bouncing around between gospels, so we put it in linear ways. John chapter 19, verses 20 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished and said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Remember, he's separated. So the full weight and cost of sin is what he's experiencing. So he thirsts to fulfill prophecy. Psalm 69, verse 21. And for me, his thirst also reminds us of our thirst, our natural hungers, our, our natural thirst, our natural yearnings. Yet they also become a numb ache, quieted by other things, moment to moment, though we don't really ever uh, seem content. It reminds me of the Psalm 42, that we have an ultimate thirst, not for physical things, but that our soul thirsts for the presence of God. And so in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, crying out that he thirsts, but it could also be might I submit that he is experiencing that separation. That even like a deer pants for water, Psalm 42, so my soul waits and desires the presence of God. And so Jesus is stepping into that experience as well. The sixth statement is found in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent and all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle when they saw it had taken place, returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who'd followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This exclamation of Jesus is not a cry of defeat, but rather a cry of victory. This is not a moment of being conquered by death, but rather of conquering death. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is not having something taken from him, but he is giving it. And the centurion's response makes this moment uniquely different from any other of the countless similar moments he has seen. 
because this is one that was said in terms of self-control, not out of control. Now the seventh statement of Jesus is found in John chapter 19 again. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. That word there does not mean it's over or it's kind of run its course, but it literally means to be fulfilled, to be executed in terms of being completed. It's actually an accounting term that everything has now been come up to the level. Jesus steps into that which we could not bear ourselves. And that presence of God has been removed from him so that the level could come up and we can enter into that space with our God. The cross is the place where we bring out everything and leave only with the things that matter, that we would leave with love and that we would leave with forgiveness. And let me leave you with this benediction. May we be a people who are mindful of Christ's death, his sacrifice of his own volition for us. And may we walk through life circumstances filtered by the forgiveness offered us through Christ and offer the same to those surrounding. And may we always remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.